Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my huge pleasure to welcome Sir Patrick Valance to the podcast today, to a large extent, a man who needs no introduction, having risen to such prominence through the course of the pandemic as the government's chief scientific advisor. Prior to this role, Patrick was heading up R&D at GSK, where medicines in cancer, asthma, autoimmune diseases, HIV, and other areas were developed and launched. And before that was a professor, as he just told me, at the age of 30 at University College London in the Division of Medicine. And if that's not enough, is also a fellow of the Royal Society. Patrick, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. No, it's, it's a great pleasure, Chris. Uh, actually, I think I was 35. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's uh, still very impressive. <laughs> All good. And so regular listeners to the pod will be used to us talking about genomics in the context of healthcare and medicine. Today, we're going to be talking about genomics mostly beyond healthcare, which is the title of a new report that Patrick and the team have put out. So... As well as flanking the Prime Minister through the pandemic, Patrick runs the Government Office of Science, or Go Science for short, which I love as a great catch cheerleading phrase. And part of that remit is to look into the future and, I guess, flag things to the government that they should be thinking about in terms of policy development and so on. So, Patrick, tell us a little bit about that. How does that programme work and why did you pick genomics as a subject of interest? Yeah, so, I mean, my role and the role of the Government Officer for Science is to make sure that um, government's got the advice it needs on science for all the things governments need to think about policy uh, in particular. And one of the things that we do, which is important, is to take a very long term view of this. And therefore, the foresight projects are ways of picking areas, going into depth and providing a look for government to say these are the types of things that you need to be aware of that probably aren't on your day-to-day radar but actually could be pretty important and need some policy consideration so over the years you know we've done things um slightly more immediately practical like um large-scale computing report or things on longer-term areas like aging what does the government need to think about that or obesity uh, citizen data, what are the scenarios, how might that play out over the, uh, the future decade, uh, reports on the future of transport and mobility, uh, looking at the ways in which that's going to change. Those are the sorts of things we do. And it seemed to me that genomics is at an extraordinarily advanced stage of evolution now. It's been incredibly important in the healthcare space and is beginning to impact in other areas. And it would be important for government to get some feel for what that means in terms of the practical implications. That makes a ton of sense. And I guess help bring that to life for us. I mean, suddenly listeners to the pod will be very familiar with the concept of genomics coming to the mainstream in healthcare. You know, we're now the first 
health service in the world to offer whole genome sequencing as part of standard uh, of care for rare disease and cancer, for example. What kind of areas is genomics starting to touch in beyond healthcare, or, or can we can we see it touching on as we as we look forward? Well, uh, let me just take a step back. I mean, for, as you know, and the listeners of this podcast will know, I mean, the first human genome took 13 years to sequence, cost millions of millions of dollars, and was a really, really tough nut to crack. It's now easy, and it doesn't take more than a few hours, and doesn't cost more than a few hundred dollars, and that's going to continue to improve. That means that this has become very, very widely available. And for healthcare, that has been an absolute revolution. And the UK has been at the forefront of that with Genomics England, with the 100,000 Genomes Project, with the sorts of work that's going in the UK Biobank and other places, you know, absolutely taken advantage of those technical advances in sequencing to be able to link that to phenotyping and understand what that means for diseases, for risk, for therapeutics, and that's changing medicine. Now, because it's all getting much easier, of course, people are picking up on it in many other areas. And uh, of course, they're not doing full whole genome sequencing yet, but they're doing sequencing of some sort, uh, whether it's for ancestry, um, whether it's uh, uh, companies now coming up, you know, offering to give predictions about various other non-medical aspects of life. And that will continue. And there are also studies going on in areas. So, of course, there are many studies going on um, in genomics relating to education. Uh, There are studies going on looking at genomics in terms of behaviours and risky behaviours and other things. There are genomics looking at the uh, implications of genetic variation for susceptibility to injury and so on. So you can begin to see, okay, well, if all that's happening and companies are getting into this space and beginning to offer this, what does that mean in terms of how that will impact society and what sort of safeguards do we want to have in place? The safeguards in the medical area are very clear. And I think, you know, it's, Genomics England has done a tremendous job and the NHS has done a tremendous job of making sure that the samples collected for medical purposes are looked after carefully. The information is it has got extremely good controls around stewardship and use of that information. And that's been an important part of why it's been a success in medicine. Is it going to go wild west in other places? And if so, what does that mean? And we know, you know it's going to be useful in some places, but we also know it's going to be misused and misinterpreted in places. And that was really the foundation of the report. How can we begin to describe that and get policymakers to think about it a bit? That's great. And so in that sense, I guess it's deliberately provocative in the sense of seeking to provoke debate on these topics, right? Um, and figuring out what, what are we as a society comfortable with, um, excited about, nervous about as um, as these things become possible. Maybe just to try and bring it to life a bit, you mentioned education as an area. I sometimes get drawn into kind of slightly loose talk at places like restaurants or bars where people say, great, we should just use genomics to spot geniuses. You know, where's the next Leonardo da Vinci coming from? Uh, this kind of stuff. You mentioned the studies that were going on. Are there, are there some things happening in education that you think are interesting and exciting? What are some of the findings there that are just emerging? I think there are quite a lot of parallels, actually, with medicine here. So I think if one asks the question, are there very specific learning differences and learning difficulties that some people have, you know, whether that's dyslexia, dyscalculia um, and so on? And 
Is it possible with genomics to identify very, very specific difficulties in learning, which could then be targeted in a certain way? That's going to be helpful. And you can see how that could be useful if we can begin to get a handle on that. And I mean, it's, it's conceivable in some of those cases, it's even going to be as extreme as monogenic things that actually, um, we, know, we know already there are monogenic things that make learning difficult for some particular reason. So there are areas where you say, yes, that's going to be helpful. And you might target specific educational interventions to try and help those people in a different way. Then you can see a whole range of things that start talking to your restaurant chat about polygenic scores for intelligence and so on, and, and IQ predictions from companies with things, which we know, again, from medicine, those sorts of things are very, very difficult to apply to the level of the individual and potentially quite misleading, given that there's huge other factors that come into play. And I guess you'd be much more concerned about the idea that people are doing tests saying, you know, your child's going to be a math genius when they're age three, and therefore, you know, you should be knocking on the doors of every school uh, that, that specializes in this to make sure that they get completely bombarded with mathematics from the, from a very young age because they're going to be totally brilliant at it and change the world now you know that's a whole different level of ethical societal debate that needs to take place and would you be happy if schools started saying actually we're going to start screening for these people because we want to know who's coming into our schools now of course that isn't happening now it may never happen but it's worth thinking about what would you do if that is the, is the way things go yeah, absolutely. So the, I guess in each of these areas, it's probably an oversimplification, but there's there's hopefully a kind of utopian or at least good outcome that we can, can try and pursue and some dystopian or negative outcomes that we may want to legislate against or um, you know have safeguards against or whatever. I guess a quick question on how this research is getting done. We've mentioned um, you know participants in the 100,000 Genomes Project, UK Biobank, um, tons of other studies. There is lots of genomic data out there. What would you say to people who have donated their, their medical data, potentially including some genetic or genomic data to a study, and who are worried about, oh, how's my data being used? Is this, what, what does this mean for me? Well, I, I think the, the safeguards that are in place for the data for samples that have been donated for research are very clear and well described. And I think, you know, kudos to those in the field who've made it like this, who's made it a safe environment in which to do that, because you know that your personal data is not going to be misused in that way. But the aggregate data can be, of course, used for experimentation to advance knowledge, and that's appropriate. And I think that's exactly where the question comes in. What does society want in those non-medical applications outside research if this starts to be used? A lot can be learned from how it's been done in medicine and how it's been done in research. But the question for regulators and legislators is what is whether they want to put some control on that. And you can imagine again, you know, if you knew that you had genomic determinants of increased risky behavior, do employers get access to that and, and start looking to say, well, you know, I don't think I want people with risky behavior in my business, or in some cases, maybe that's exactly what I want. But these things and, and that's a sort of misuse because we none of those things are certain enough to be able to use them in that way uh, and, and again that's a great lesson from medicine I think where as we look at the advances over the years we know that very early on 
in genetic association studies, there were quite misleading results because sample sizes weren't big enough and people uh, didn't control the populations in the study carefully enough and you ended up with rogue results. That's all been ironed out through a lot of hard work from people and uh, that has been sorted out in a way that could be applied to other fields as they start to use it. Uh, and the safeguards are another example where I think medicine has been ahead. Yeah, exactly. The sort of infamous newspaper headline, scientists discover gene for X, yeah. you know, where X exactly. is kind of liking chocolate ice cream or something. Or um, So, yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And the, the data sets that have been collected so far for health can only be used for the purposes of health research. And the parallel of using healthcare data for insurance is an interesting one, where in the UK we have a um, an agreement with the insurance industry that genetic data collected through the course of healthcare is not used, for example, to price insurance premiums and so on. That at the moment is a, a voluntary agreement that the industry has signed up to. It may well become legislation at some point. What do you see the role of legislation as in these broader areas? Are these a series of problems we can kind of legislate our way out of or how does legislation play a role? Well, I think that's exactly what the, the report's about. It's not trying to suggest that legislation is needed. It's trying to get those people whose job it is to think about policy and legislation to address this advance in technology and our ability to link genomic information to phenotypes in all their breadth and ask the question, are the safeguards right at the moment? Are there new things that are needed or not? And there may be no. The answer may be no. There's sufficient there already to cover it. But you can see this straying into other areas, and you already see it in the, in, in the US to some extent. On the one hand, you've got ancestry go, uh, determinations going on, which, of course, don't just have implications for you as an individual. They have implications for your relatives as well. And how do you want to deal with that information? You've got potential court cases where it's not just now looking at the question of uh, can you use sequencing to identify the person who was there, yes or no, but are variants that are changing behavioural susceptibility relevant in the discussion of culpability? These are going to be things that come up and we should, I think governments should be ahead of them, not caught in, in reaction. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely not, and the report is not arguing for a heavy legislative hand on this, but a wise legislative look at what needs to be done and a regulatory consideration. So regulation is definitely is clearly one, one of the things in the mix. The report itself involved lots of conversations with lots of different stakeholders. As we start to work through these kind of questions, how would you see public engagement or kind of societal dialogue helping inform some of these questions? Well, I think this fundamentally is about the societal dialogue. And so, you know, one of the things that the report tries to do is lay out some of the basics of this hopefully in a way that's accessible for people so that the terminology is clear. Because uh, as you'll know, Chris, you know, there's a lot of confusion around how people use the words. And there's often not much differentiation in the way some people talk about it between common genetic variation and a single gene mutation that causes um, a, a very significant change in something. And so we try to lay that out to try to make this something that uh, could be the start of a public debate and um, a societal debate. But going back to your, you know, some of your earlier comments, I mean, the danger is that this is perceived as all dystopian, 
or that it's perceived as utopia. And it's it's neither of those things. It but there are elements that can drive you in one direction or another, and there are choices for societies to make about how much risk they're prepared to take, how much um, they want this to be all about individuals, and how much it's a societal issue to try and set the boundaries. Absolutely, it's it's a really you mentioned the pace of change and the need for government to kind of keep up. You know, in my former job before I was at Genomics England, I was leading a company that was making AI uh, products. These kind of fields like AI, genomics and so on are moving so fast. It strikes me that this report is, as you've said, an attempt to build that bridge between where the science and technology have got to and where the public and, and government are. What else can we be doing to help society, the public, the government, kind of keep up with the almost insane pace of change in technology and science these days yeah i mean just just a word on on the pace and 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 the and the risk first of all then i'll I'll come back to what else we can do i mean those who are old enough on this listening to this podcast to 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 remember this was remember when nanotechnology uh was first raised and the whole gray goo i remember gray goo (laughs) you know i i mean which just completely led to sort of chaos around the place around what this really meant we cannot afford that here because this is this is really serious stuff that actually is happening and the pace of change is most obvious in medicine and the benefits are really clear in medicine so what can we all do we can actually make that known and also i think what we've learned in medicine in particular is where this is difficult, you know, where the application becomes uncertain and where, to your point, the common variant that is associated with something gets labelled as the gene for something, we can dispel that and say that's not what that means. And medicine, I think, has got the examples which can then help the rest of society understand where this can be applied and where the pitfalls are. Yeah. And I I love the point you make about, you know, we need to tell those stories. Um, and we talk a lot at Genomics England about human stories and the reason we get out of bed in the morning is to try and, you know, help as many of those human stories have have good outcomes as um, as possible. You take the example there, Chris, of, of, of the 7,000 rare diseases, you know, which have just been labeled as rare diseases. And we're gradually working out what these really, really are. And that will be the same in some other areas. You know, what are, are the different causes of dyscalculia? Yeah. And it, it also, as a side note, makes a point about branding because rare diseases, while individually rare, are collectively actually quite common. <laughs> and, um, but, the, the, but the branding is poor in terms of they've been called rare diseases. So we touched right at the beginning on the role that you've played through the pandemic. It's obviously been an extraordinarily challenging time for the world, for us as a society, it's also, however, been a crucible in which I think we've seen extraordinary response from the science community, from the genomics community, from the clinical medicine community. Is there anything that you think we can take from that in terms of learnings to, I guess, go into the next chapter of our relationship as public government, medical profession and so on with these topics? What can we learn from that pandemic experience? Well, there's an enormous amount of um, pride that the uh, academic and scientific community in the UK and across the world should take around this. I mean, it's been quite extraordinary if you look at the advances that have taken place. 
in genomics, the very early realization that genomic sequencing was going to be crucial to understand the spread of this disease, and of course now to monitor variants, led to an early discussion, and Sharon Peacock and I discussed this very early on, and then the COG UK got set up to do this. And people came together right the way across the UK to make that happen, from big units like the Sanger Centre through to uh, individual labs and so on. And it's been remarkable. I mean, that was an incredible activity with the UK at one point contributing, you know, 50% of all the genome sequencing sequences for COVID in the world. And it showed the way and we we did it really well. And uh, we did it really well around things like vaccines as well. Extraordinary coming together to make uh, make something happen. The national core studies that we put together, groups came together from multiple disciplines to answer really important questions for the pandemic. I hope some of those groupings stay. I hope the ability to move really quickly with grant funding where you've got a big problem that needs to be tackled can stay. I think we've learned a lot about you know how to do that. I hope that the pleasure, insights and excitement that have come from disparate groups coming together to solve a problem and realizing that that's you know how big these big difficult problems get solved will be a way of working going forward and uh, you know from what i hear from everybody that's what everyone's determined to do so i think we've learned an enormous amount and of course society's learned an enormous amount about how quickly science can act and politicians have as well and you know get come together and 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 work as we did and we can achieve really amazing things i I think you're absolutely right and your mention of the core studies has given me flashbacks to uh, about a year and a half ago. I remember it felt almost like a sort of Dunkirk moment that there were so many um, efforts going on, as you say, from the big things to the to the small things that actually just shepherding all of them and trying to trying to get them all to Dunkirk, so to speak, um, was was almost an effort in itself. It strikes me the general public has also learned a lot about science in the last year and a half. I mean, conversations with kind of obscure elderly relatives of, of mine about mRNA and, you know, T cells and B cells and so on happen in a way that they suddenly weren't a couple of years ago. So that, that I think is also something that's maybe gives a bit of a foundation for a different kind of conversation going forward. One of the themes of this podcast is around um, what we loosely call having a, having a national conversation about genomics, which is exactly what we've been doing today. Are there either themes or topics or people who you don't think get enough airtime and who, as as part of hosting this conversation, you think we should give a platform to or get onto the pod and chat to? Well, I, I think that, and again, we, we learned this in medicine early on. We know that most of the samples collected and most of the cohorts don't represent society. You know, there's a massive over-representation of um, white people in um, uh, collections, that's going to be very true in other areas. We've got an underrepresentation of uh, various ethnic groups and other parts of society. Um, that's going to be a real risk as this goes outside medicine into other, other places and, and drawing inferences from sample collections which are not appropriately diverse is going to be a bigger area. You can see that some of the potential uses have uh, the potential to increase inequality if we haven't got it right. So I think there's a massive area there that's definitely worth a chat. How do we get that right? How do we make sure that we get the right 
groups represented. We have the right discussion. We understand what the what the risks and opportunities are here, right the way across society, and involve others. And you're right. You know, the pandemic has raised science interest across um, the community. We've got a whole generation of school children desperate to sort of get involved in science and be involved in part of this conversation. And it's them that this is going to affect. So I think there's a really big opportunity there. That is fantastic. Patrick, thank you so much. Really interesting to see where these topics and the conversations around them uh, take us to in the months and years to come. Yeah, really looking forward to seeing how we can steer towards a few utopian uh, pieces and steer steer clear of a few uh, dystopian ones thanks so much for making the time it's it's a pleasure if i can just make one other point you know beyond human health even uh, or human use of course the whole area is going to be crucial for everything from monitoring um waste you can start to track which ship has discharged things it shouldn't discharge in a port you can think about its use in monitoring biodiversity such a key area for the future uh, you can think about the impact of the environment on the changes in species across the world over time. You know, this is going to be a ubiquitous area of societal discussion. Absolutely. Here's to that discussion. Look forward to it. Thanks again. Thanks very much. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.